Alrighty, good evening, um, and uh, welcome to the 20 lessons you need to learn to be an informed Jew. So the 20 lessons. Uh, sorry that this is coming out so late. Um, as you may know, I uh, kind of hurt myself playing hockey the other day, but uh, things are coming back together now. So uh, it's good to it's good to be doing this. So our first podcast, our first class, will be about God. Because as I thought about it, starting with anything else other than God seemed to be a bit absurd. And I think by the time we're done with this podcast, um, you'll understand what I'm talking about. So the question that I want to begin with tonight is, do we as Jews have an obligation? Do we have a commandment to believe in God? So let's take a look at the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments given to God to given by God to the Jewish people through Moses at Mount Sinai. And the first of the Ten Commandments is, I am the Lord your God who took you out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So the question is, is that a commandment? And in fact, the Rambam, also the English word for the Rambam, is Maimonides, his name, which is an acronym for Rabbi Moshe, the son of Maimon. He was one of the greatest Jewish philosophers and Torah scholars in Jewish history, also a very well-known astronomer and physician at that time. Um, and uh, he tells us that, in fact, those words of that first commandment, I am the Lord your God who took you out of the land of Egypt, is a commandment to believe in God. And in fact, he has a entire book dedicated to every one of the 613 mitzvot, the 613 commandments, and this is the first commandment in that book. Um, another very famous Jewish philosopher by the name of Nachmanides, or Ramban, Rabbi Moshe, the son of Nachman, um, he is one of the greatest Jewish philosophers and greatest Torah scholars of Jewish history as well. Um, he sometimes looked at things from a more Kabbalistic bent than the Rambam, than Maimonides, who often looked at things from a very rationalistic um, type of uh, type of perspective, he tells us, well, first he brings one opinion that says, this is absolutely not a commandment, but rather a prerequisite. And he brings a parable from the Midrash. He brings a parable from our oral tradition about a king who enters a country and his servants tell him, make decrees for those people. And he responds, if only they would accept my reign, I would make decrees upon them. Because if they do not accept my reign, how can they fulfill my decrees? And this opinion basically says that you have a prerequisite. A prerequisite to, to then fulfilling all of the other commandments is the belief that there is a God. And then God is the commander and, commander, commander, and then so on and so forth. Nachmanides himself believes that it's actually a mixture, that this first of the Ten Commandments is both a commandment to believe in God and, of course, a prerequisite as well. So let's focus for a moment on the Rambam's opinion, on Maimonides' opinion, that the first of the Ten Commandments is, in fact, a commandment to anyone that's reading the Torah, a commandment to believe in God. And on that, you have two questions. Um, the questions were very eloquently posed by a uh, rabbi, a, another great Jewish philosopher, again from the more rationalistic school, like the Rambam, like Maimonides. Um, his name is Rav Kereskas Chazdai, the son of Avraham Kereskas. Um, he was um, born in 1340, so he lived a little bit after Maimonides and Nachmanides. And he asks as follows. First, he says 
that um, it cannot be that there's a commandment to believe in God. And he asks it from very logical point of view, because the very concept of a commandment implies a commander. And therefore, it is at best redundant to have a distinct commandment to believe in that commander. But what I want to talk about for the next two minutes is his second question, because I think his second question gets to the very core of God and Judaism. His second question is, how can one be commanded to believe in something? It is incoherent to command belief. Since what we believe is not in our control, God can command us to act, but there is no such thing as commanding belief. I I can command you to investigate. I can command you to learn about some issue. I can even try to demonstrate it or prove it to you, but I cannot command you to accept or believe in a certain conclusion. That is just something that happens. It's not any more up to you than it's up to me. Um, In fact, when you think about it for a moment, commanding someone to believe or know is very similar to commanding someone to become taller or shorter. In other words, it's nonsense. So what exactly is the Rambam saying? What is Maimonides saying that there's a commandment to believe in God? And I think that's the very important question when it boils down to, to what God and Judaism is all about. So one way of responding to this question and to understanding what the Rambam, what Maimonides means when he says that there is a commandment to believe in God is more to understand this commandment is not to believe in God, but rather an obligation to engage in philosophical investigation in order to demonstrate to oneself that God does exist. So the commandment is not to arrive at that conviction or that belief, but rather what it is, it is to take this journey of uh, take this journey of exploration to engage in honest investigation. And then the assumption is, is that once we have investigated enough, there's good reason to assume that that investigation will lead us to a belief in God, um, that it will lead us to a belief um, in uh, in the existence of a higher power. So this is a very interesting way of of thinking about this commandment, that it's an obligation, it's a commandment to investigate, to come to that belief. Um, it's 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 a commandment to explore or to learn more in order to come to this conviction, because this basically is telling us that ultimately if you study enough or you philosophize enough, you can come to a very solid belief in God. Now, the question is, is then what place does faith play? This seems to tell us that you can come to a uh, belief in God from a place of logic, but then where does faith play? So, and I think faith is a very important part of Judaism, a very important part about of of religion. And this would seem to say that there is very little room for faith in, uh, in, uh, in, uh, in our heritage. So perhaps we can say something very similar, but still different. Perhaps we can say as follows, that we are obligated not to investigate from a logical or from a philosophical standpoint, and that that will bring us, and that there's a good chance that that will bring us to a belief in God. But rather, perhaps the commandment here is to never stop seeking meaning on the chance that God does exist, we can never stop our journey towards finding that transcendence, towards finding God, towards finding a higher power, our creator. 
never just deciding, never finishing our journey. In other words, to say that I am an atheist, which is something that you really cannot prove one way or the other, to say you are an atheist, that is not something that fits within um, the first of the Ten Commandments. What does fit in the first of the Ten Commandments is to say, I currently do not believe, but I'm not going to give up and conclude that I do not believe. I currently don't know, but I'm not going to conclude at this point in my life that I do not believe, that God does not exist. What the Torah is really asking us to do is on the chance that that God does exist, never stop journeying towards God. And when you think about it, a wonderful way of doing that is probably to experience those things that God tells us will bring us closer to God, which are the 613 mitzvot, the 613 commandments in the Torah. Or perhaps it's it's finding that type of transcendence in other ways as well, being more in tune to the world around us, the miracles that happen in, in, in our lives, so on and so forth. It's about experiencing. It's about never stopping that journey and never concluding that God does not exist, but rather constantly making this um, constantly making this journey a central part of our existence. So that could be the idea here. And interestingly, I actually think that this is very much at the heart of Judaism. When you think about the Hebrew word for the children of Israel, it's Yisrael. Yisrael is, um, the Torah tells us, Jacob, the third of our patriarchs, was given that name after battling, after fighting all night, after wrestling all night with an angel. And Yisrael is made up of the words, Kisarisa Imelokim, you fought, Imelohim, you fought with God, you wrestled with God. And that was the name that was given to Jacob. And in turn, that became the name of the Jewish people, the children of Israel, the children of this man that wrestled with God. And perhaps that's a lesson to us is that that's really what Judaism is. If you're not sure if you believe, then we wrestle, we journey, we struggle, we think, we never stop. And even when we do believe in God, we're going to find contradictions, but we continue to struggle, we continue to wrestle. And as we do so, that is where the greatest meaning is found. There's an old uh, Hasidic story. There's an old Hasidic story, a Hasidic tale um, about, this, uh, about this Hasidic rabbi, this Hasidic rebbe that said, there's nothing in this world that's not here for a reason. There's nothing in this world that does not have a reason. And one of his, one of his, uh, his, uh, his Hasidim, one of his um, followers um, raised his hand and he said, but Rebbe, what about atheism? What's atheism here for in this world? And he says, atheism? Atheism is here for when somebody asks you for charity. At that point in time, you can no longer say, let God will provide. That's where atheism uh, plays a role. Because instead, you have to be the one to take care of them. And that moment in time, that's when you believe God doesn't exist. So there may very well be that there's no commandment to believe in God per se, because that cannot be commandment, commanded. But one thing that we can definitely say is that God plays a very significant role in Judaism. And furthermore... What we can say is that there is a specifically Jewish conception of God. There may be different Jewish conceptions of God, but there's, there is one approach that seems to have taken root and has become firmly solidified amongst, amongst, the, uh, amongst, the, amongst the, 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 the Jewish people. And this, um, this conception is very eloquently laid out by the Rambam. By Maimonides, one of, again, as I said, one of the greatest Jewish philosophers to ever have lived. 
um, he codifies um, many different concept, many of the different details within our conception of God, within what he called, within what we know as the 13 principles of faith. Now, these 13 principles of faith are actually many, many paragraphs. We, in many of our prayer books, can find those paragraphs concisely written in 13 sentences. One of those sentences has become incredibly well known. The sentence that uh, the one about um, our belief in the Messiah, because that is the that those words and a tune that became very famous. Um, that was the song of hope that survived the Holocaust, even when the composer did not survive. Um, it's sung all around the world. It's magnificent, and it's um, it's a it's a powerful, powerful song. Um, but that's one of the thirteen principles of faith. Anima means anima means I believe. But what I want to focus in on now are the principles of faith that specifically speak to our conception of God. Uh, more or less, five out of the thirteen speak to our conception of God. I'm going to share the first four. Add another couple of points, and then we'll get to the last one at the end. Um, and, of course, I'm going to be saying these very briefly. This is a synopsis of these um, of these different principles of faith, these different uh, details within our conception of God. And, of course, every single one of these can be discussed and debated for hours upon hours and hours. Each one of them can be a, a definitely a class, if not an entire course on its own. So let's begin with the first principle. The text of the first principle, or the part of the text that I'm going to share with you tonight, um, goes as follows. The first foundation is the existence of the creator, that there exists a being in the most perfect type of existence, and that this being is the cause of the existence of all other beings. In this being is the source of their existence, and from it derives their continued existence. If we were able to eliminate its existence, then the existence of all other beings would be nullified and nothing would remain. However, if we were able to eliminate the existence of all other beings other than it, then God's existence would not be nullified nor be lacking because God is self-sufficient, depending on no other for God's existence. Everything is dependent upon God for its existence. So that may have sounded confusing and repetitive. So I'm just going to share the major points from this first foundation or principle. Number one, God exists. Number two, God is the cause of all other existences. In other words, the, con uh, the continued existence of all originates with and depends on God. Number three, God's existence is perfect. So this understands that there are existences that are imperfect. There are different degrees of existence and God exists in the fullest possible way. This means, number one, that if God did not exist, then nothing would exist. And number two, that even if nothing else existed, God's existence would not be affected or lessened in any sort of way because God is completely self-sufficient. Okay, so um, we're not going to spend much time on this, just a couple of quick points. I want to elaborate on point number two. God is the cause of all other existences. Um, the continued existence of all originates with and depends on God. So not just the original existence of everything depends on God, but the continued existence of everything depends on God. In other words, um, the the, the universe requires a constant force that maintains it. So this means that God is not merely the creator, but God continuously maintains the universe. We mention this in many of our prayers. 
Um, and this is something that can be discussed for quite a while and definitely also has a, um, a, a lot to um, – it can be much better described when we talk more about Kabbalah, when we talk more about Jewish mysticism. Okay, that's the, that's the first principle that I want that, um, that the Rambam shares with us, that Maimonides shares with us. I think something very important to also remember from this is that what we're saying here is God is absolute. That because if God is not absolute, then God is no more than just a superhero, a superman, a superwoman, right? The, then the difference between man and God would become quantitative and not qualitative. And the moment the difference between man, human kind, and God becomes quantitative, then we run the risk of, instead of us being created in God's image, we create God in our image or in our imagination, and that has very, um, that has very detrimental results. Uh, okay, let's get to number two. The, uh, the second principle, the second um, concept that... Uh, the Rambam that Maimonides shares with us about God. Um, well, why don't we first talk, why don't we first mention the most famous of Jewish declarations, the most famous of Jewish prayers, perhaps. And those are the words, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. This famous verse has been the Jews' testimony of loyalty to God for thousands and thousands of years. We say it at least twice daily, um, and it has been the final words of many Jews, and of course, Jews who died sanctifying God's name, um, all of the horrors of Jewish history, the Jews have died with these words on their lips. I just want to share a very quick story, um, the story of Rabbi Eliezer Silver. Rabbi Eliezer Silver was a rabbi that lived in the United States, um, but was very involved in um, in the rescue and especially after the Holocaust in the helping of, uh, of all of the displaced persons. And one of the things he did is he realized that many of the, um, many of the Catholic orphanages um, hid Jewish children during the Holocaust. And many of them were not returning those Jewish souls um, to the Jewish community. Um, they would, they would uh, try to convert these, these children and, um, and uh, you know, make sure that they never knew about their Jewish, uh, Jewish identity. So he would go to these orphanages. And one story tells us that he went to an orphanage and he said, um, please, please let me, please allow me to have your Jewish children so that at least they can become, re-become re part of the Jewish community. And they said, we have no Jews here. And he said, let me see your, uh, let me see your list of names of everybody in the orphanage. And of course, there are many Jewish names. And he said, isn't that a Jewish name? And they said, no, that's not a Jewish Rosenstock. That's a German Rosenstock and so on and so forth. So he said, fine, just give me, give me one minute with him. It's almost bedtime. Give me one minute with these children. He goes into this huge dormitory. Um, all the kids are already in bed. And he yells out the word, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu. And then all of a sudden, there's the, a great voice of so many children saying back Hashem Echad, because those were the words that um, their mothers and fathers put them to sleep with every single night until the Holocaust happened. And those were words that they would never forget. And of course, those children became um, once again part of the Jewish community. So those are the, those are the, the words I want to focus on right now. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, specifically the Lord is one. The Rambam, Maimonides, has the unity of God, the oneness of God as his second principle. 
Um, and I'm going to read it to you. The second foundation is God's unity. That this one who is the cause of the existence of everything is one. And God's oneness is unlike the oneness of anything else or any species. It's not like the oneness of a single composed individual, which can be divided into many units. Nor is God's oneness like that of the simple body, which is one in number, but infinitely divisible. Rather, God is one with the oneness for which there is no comparison at all. So what we see here is the Rambam, the Rambam's conception of God's unity or oneness is formulated entirely in negative terms because God is one, but not in any of the ways that we would normally understand something as being one, which again, we see the Rambam doing something very specific here. What the Rambam is telling us is that God is has a complete unity. God is one, but we can use none of our normal conceptions of unity can apply to God because to ascribe one of our usual categories of oneness to God is to subject God to human understanding, which then conceives as God as something within the construction of the world. In other words, we would once again be making that mistake of instead of us being created in God's image, we would be creating God in our image. I just want to point out a couple of things about what this one means. Um, so let's go back to that verse. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. When we say those words, the Lord is our God, um, you could be mis you can mistakenly think that this is no different than the ancient Greek declaring his allegiance to Zeus, right? It can be that, you know, you can mistakenly think that God is our God, meaning a private God of the Jewish people, but, you know, perhaps the chief God of the pantheon to one to whom one must declare their allegiance because this God has competitors. That's what you would think when you would say those words, Elokeinu, our God. So we therefore add in the word, the, the idea that God is one, that there are no other gods. There's no competition. And if we would have just had this idea of God is one, God is this one universalistic notion of monotheism, then gone would be that thought of us being able to create that personal relationship with God, right? Because God is this universalistic God. So therefore we put in the words, God is our God. So God is our God. God is available and wills our relationship with God. But at the same time, God is one. There are no other gods. God is the one universalistic God. So that's that's what's going on when we say those those Hebrew words. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Two other t uh, just quick points to say about the oneness of God. When we talk from a Kabbalistic point of view, this becomes this almost forms the very basis of what Jewish mysticism is all about. It's this idea. It's the conception of God as the unification of the properties or forces that exist in the universe. And I know that right now that sounds um, like a very difficult thing to comprehend, but we will definitely discuss that more as we continue on in this podcast series. Um, and then the last thing I want to point out, which again is going to be, we're going to dedicate an entire class to, but um, when we talk about God being one, we're emphasizing that everything we experience, the myriad of conflicting forces in our universe, it all reflects one unity, a oneness that knows no parallel. So that means pleasure and pain, joy and sorrow all have one source. 
The good things that happen to bad people and the bad things that happen to good people all have one origin, right? Because this, this idea is really what's telling us to reject that influence of polytheism, which could even exist in the mind of somebody that only believes in one God. Because we have a tendency to identify good and evil and then happiness and suffering as, as having separate causes, right? You can see all of the different conflicting facets of God's providence and you can get very confused. And it will be easy to, to, to resolve these contradictory elements of life by concluding that this represents – that this – Happiness and this sorrow represent separate conflicting forces or powers that control our reality. But that is incorrect, right? We could incorrectly understand God's nature um, as almost like we could identify with one aspect of God, such as God's mercy, while failing to appreciate God's unity. So we'll talk a lot more about this when we talk, dedicate a class to why do bad things happen to good people. But ultimately, when we think about the oneness of God, it means God is the source of everything in this world, even things that seem to be conflicting. And we'll talk more about what that means in a later podcast. Okay, let's get to principle three. Um, principle three is this idea of whenever we we often will encounter if one if one is familiar with the words of the Bible, the Torah, one is familiar with rabbinic sources, you'll often find that you know God is described as almost having a physical manifestation, like the hand of God, the voice of God. And we know, and the Talmud tells us that we should be interpreting that type of language as metaphorical. But perhaps the person most responsible for the fact that attributing any sort of physicality to God as being ridiculous is the Rambam, is Maimonides. Because this is the third principle of faith, according to the Rambam. This is Maimonides' third principle of faith. I'm going to read you a couple of sentences of it. The third foundation is the denial of corporal reality or having a body to God. That this one is neither a body nor force within a body. None of the characteristics of a body appertain to God. As I said, the Talmud tells us that anytime the scriptures describe God as having attributes of a body, moving from place to place, standing, sitting, sitting, standing, sitting, speaking, it's all metaphor. The Torah speaks in the language of man, the Talmud tells us. But going back to the, the principle of faith, I just want to mention a couple of interesting things. Number one, the Rambam is telling us that not only do we not conceive of God as physical, but also God should not be conceived as a force within a body, perhaps as some sort of energy. God is not that either. God is not only not made out of matter, God is not made out of energy either. And not only is God not made out of energy, we often think of God as a spiritual being, being but really that's a loose, um, that we, we, we're, but really we're applying that term loosely. Because if you think of a physical object as occupying space and time, but something that's spiritual perhaps just occupies uh, space and time, then you have to conclude that God is neither physical nor spiritual because God is not confined to space or time. God is the creator of space or time, but certainly beyond space or time. If God was material, we would then be able to compare God to everything that was material in creation. If God was spiritual, then we can compare God to anything that is spiritual in creation. But as we know, neither of those comparisons can be made because there is no relationship of any 
kind that could properly describe God. So that's the third principle, which does leave us with a, with a bit, you know, with, with something that, that can be difficult because here we are, we're praying to God, we're thinking about God, we're meditating on God, but what exactly are we thinking about? It's almost like this blank slate. That's all that we really have available to us. Okay, let's get to um, let's get to the fourth principle. The fourth principle um, is uh, is almost like a two-parter. Um, very important. The fourth foundation. I'm going to read to you some of the Rambam's words, some of Maimonides' words. The fourth foundation is God's precedence that this one who has just been described precedes everything absolutely. No other being has precedence with respect to God. Know that a foundation of the great Torah is that the world was created. God formed it and created it after its absolute non-existence. You have to understand, in the Middle Ages, there were three competing opinions. There was the traditional Jewish view of a creation by God, something from nothing. You had the Platonic view that God created the world out of pre-existing unshaped matter. And then you had the Aristotelian view that the world is eternal and that God eternally has coexisted with it. And the Rambam, Maimonides, spends a very large portion of Mora Nevuchim, his Jewish book work on Jewish philosophy um, um, titled Mora Nevuchim, which translates to the Guide to the Perplexed, which we'll talk about at a different point. He basically spends a very large section dealing with this issue, dealing with this issue. Now, what's interesting about this, so what we have here is that God... Um, is the God has always existed um, without not just first but without a beginning and then created all existence from a perfect void. Now, this is very interesting. So for many, many years, you had this argument with the Aristotelian view of what, how you know, was the world created? Did it last forever or was it around forever? And then, so just an interesting thing, an interesting little tidbit is that in 1959, a survey was taken of leading American scientists. And the response to this survey was published not too long ago in the Scientific American. And the survey, one of the questions of the survey was, what is your concept of the age of the universe? So in 1959, cosmology, which is the understanding of the universe, was just developing, like the, the, whole, the whole physics around that. And when asked, what is your concept of the age of the universe, two-thirds of the scientists gave the same answer. A beginning? There was no beginning. Aristotle taught us 2,400 years ago that the universe is eternal. And yeah, perhaps the Bible says in the beginning, but we know better than that. There was no beginning. And then... Fast forward, what, six years? That was 1959. You fast forward, I think it was 1965, when Penzias and Wilson, they discovered the echo of the Big Bang in the black sky of the sky at night, and the world paradigm changed from a universe that was eternal to a universe that had a beginning. So after 3,000 years of arguing, what you ended up having was science coming and agreeing with what the Torah had said all along. Bereshit baralokim, in the beginning God created. Um, that the world was a created entity, something from nothing. Okay, those were the first four principles um, said in a very succinct manner, um, about as succinct as I think I could have done it. Um, let me just share with you two couple of other um, important details in the conception of God. Um, one is um, omnipotence, that once we understand that God designed and created the world, 
um, we also have to understand that God has full control over it. Um, as the creator of all things, God has every ability that we see in the world. It's all present in God as well. Um, so God is all powerful, in other words. Now, and obviously, in a very interesting question that will uh, that um, that you can uh, walk away with this from is: Does this mean can, the the big question is um, the big philosophical question is: Can God create a rock that God cannot lift? Okay, I'll leave you with that. Can God create a rock that God cannot lift? God is all-powerful. God, God is omnipotent. Can God create a rock that God cannot lift? Another axiom, another detail in the conception, our conception of God, part of God's being completely other, right, is this idea that God is infinite. All things in the world are finite. They are limited within particular boundaries, both the physical and even to spiritual as well. They're all bounded by their fundamental essence. God, though, who is not a creation, is not defined or limited by any boundaries. God is fundamentally infinite. Now, the concept of infinity is not easy to grasp. In fact, for finite beings, it's impossible to grasp. Um, but again, as I've said a couple of times already, when we think about God, we have to get used to the idea of our having a limited understanding. And now this brings us back to what is the 10th of the Rambam's principles of faith, which is God's omniscience. That not only is God all-powerful, God is all-knowing as well. Past, present, future, they're all as one to God. Not only does God know what has happened, what's happening now, what will happen, God knows all hidden things. We mentioned that quite often in our prayer services, especially around the high holidays. God knows the thoughts of our hearts. Meaning, since God exists outside of time, God knows the future exactly as God knows the past. Um, God's knowledge is basically identical with God's infinite infinity. So God's knowledge is infinite. Um, so God, yeah, er, er, everything. God knows everything. I think that uh, we don't have to say much more about that, about this point. Obviously, there's a lot to discuss. I'll just leave you with one other, uh, another um, one of those mind uh, mind puzzles when it comes to God's um, omniscience. God knows everything. Um, another very important axiom in Judaism is this idea of, is the idea of free will, that we as human beings have absolute free will. But if God knows, if God knows the future, God knows what we are going to choose, then how do we reconcile that with free will? Just to give you an example, we have an orange in front of us and we have an apple in front of us. If God knows we're going to choose the apple, then do we really have free will? Do we really have absolute free will to be able to choose the orange? If God knows we're going to choose the apple, how does that work? Okay, um, the one. so uh, we're going to stop for tonight. Um, the idea, though, that we need to take away from, from this or... One of the ideas we need to take away from this is even though yet that it is probably impossible to command belief, but we as you know the the uh, a a focal point of being Jewish is this idea of struggle, is this idea of journey, is this idea of never giving up, and is this idea of um, trying to find trying to find that higher power in our lives, trying to find trying to find that transcendence in our lives. And the second thing that I think we see from all of these different details of the conceptions of God, um, according to the Rambam, according to Maimonides, is that the moment you concretize God, that's the moment that you've created God. And then instead of being created in God's image, we are creating God in our own image. Um, have a great night. And if you have any questions, please be in touch with me through email, 
calling, Facebook, however you'd like. Take care.